your Bibles to the book of Galatians. The Galatians is in the New Testament. There's a bunch of Pauline epistles together. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And the way that you can remember that is go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So um, the Bible translator, lady, you, you should put that into uh, the, the, uh, the uh, precursor, the prefect, the preface, and say, here's how you remember that. Because that's how I always remember that. Go eat popcorn. And I don't like popcorn that much, so I don't know why I remember that. It is a privilege to be with you in Yangon. Um, and like I said, just what God can do, and I'm just as shocked as Aaron is at what God's done in his life, and um, how God's worked and put and restored their marriage and restored their family. I'm sure that Vicki had to forgive a whole lot, and she had to work through a whole lot to get get to a point, and then when said, oh, by the way, we're moving to Myanmar, I'm sure she had to work through a whole lot more, and a whole lot more, because if I told my wife, hey, by the way, guess where we're going? And uh, we attended a village uh, this week where we drove for about six hours, and we met some people on a boat and went another hour into wherever we went. When you got to depend on the tide to be right, to go in and out, man, that's remote, that's a long ways away. And if I said to my wife, hey, we're going to move to this place. And she said, but wait, there's no Walmart. Uh, there's no grocery store. What are we going to do? I said, well, we'll figure it out. And God will supply. I'm sure that she would have had to work through a lot. So I'm sure Vicki had to work through a lot. I want us to look at Galatians. I've been preaching through the book of Galatians in my own church. Um, and if you want to know more about our church, we're on the web also. SmithValleyBaptistChurch.org. And uh, you can listen to our sermons there and, and get to know us a little bit. But Galatians was written to defend the gospel. It was written to defend the gospel against distortions, perversions. And some of the most difficult and the harshest language of the Bible is found in the book of Galatians. Look at verse 8. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. Paul says, even if we... Or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be, everybody say the next word, accursed. Some some versions say condemned. Some versions say damned. That's what it means. And then just in case we missed it, just in case we went, I don't know if I heard that right, Paul. You're you're, you're meaning people who preach another gospel should go to hell. Uh, Paul says it again. Look at verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Same word, anathema. Harsh language. He says, in verse 8, it's almost as if he could look ahead to the year 1820 when a guy named Joseph Smith would be on some mountain somewhere and see this angel that supposedly came to him to reveal to him another testament of Jesus Christ. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? The angel's name was Moroni. I call him the angel moron. Because the Bible says here there is no other testament. There is no other gospel. Mormons are not Christians. Because they do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. What what does Paul say? If we, or even if you claim an angel from heaven comes and gives you another gospel, let him be accursed. 
But that's what the book of Galatians is. It's, it's a defense of the gospel. Last week, if you'll look with me, last week at my home church, I was able to preach uh, chapter 2. We've made it all the way to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And there is a parallel passage in Acts chapter 15 that parallels this section in Galatians. It is the Jerusalem Council. It is the most important event in the life of the church. And I begin this introduction this way. I did a, a, an internet search and I found, I found, um, I found this lady named Rebecca Graff. I don't know if you know her. She, she contributes a lot of articles, uh, to his, uh, to educational, uh, systems in America. And she's put together the top 10 most important events in history. Now, I don't know if you would agree with her list. There's some things on her list I probably wouldn't put on my list. That would be an overwhelming task to try to, to try to say what are the most important things that have ever happened in the, in the world. Uh, she put some of, these are some of her lists. She put the American Revolution when America won its freedom from England. She put the life of Jesus of Nazareth. That would be on my list. How about your list? That's an important event in history, isn't it? Uh, she put the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. Uh, she put World War One and World War Two. Uh, she put Gutenberg's printing press. That would have made my uh, list. This one probably would not have. The life of Muhammad. That probably is not on my list. Pax Romana was the 200-year uh, empire of the Romans when they experienced peace. A lot of inventions were made. I probably wouldn't put that on there. I certainly wouldn't put the Renaissance uh, on there. But this one I would have put on there, the Reformation of the Church. You remember a guy named Martin Luther who nailed his 95 Thesis to any room. And his, his intent was never, ever, ever to kill Catholicism. His intent was to get Catholics to go back to the root of scriptures. But God used that to birth the church, the true church. That's an important event in the life of the church. But I'm going to tell you the most important event in the life of the church was what's talked about in Galatians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 15. In Galatians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 15, they had to decide what the gospel was. Because there were people Paul was preaching to Gentiles and they were getting saved and they were receiving the Holy Spirit just like the Jews had received the Holy Spirit. God was giving Gentiles the Holy Spirit and they were getting saved. But there were some in the church that said, okay, you know, Jesus is enough, grace is enough, unless they are Gentiles. If they are Gentiles, they must become Jews before they can become a Christian. Wow, that's weird. Which means they had to come under the Mosaic law. They had to be circumcised. They had to observe the law. They had to observe the feast, certain feasts. And so they had to come under the Mosaic law in order to be saved before they could become a Christian. And that's what they were saying to the Gentiles who were becoming Christians. Okay, now that you're saved, you need to be circumcised. You need to obey the Mosaic law. And Galatians was written to defend the gospel but it's not the only book of the Bible written to defend the gospel. Paul says in Galatians that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. That is the only way a person can be saved. There is no plan B. There is no other option. The only way that a person can be saved is through Jesus Christ. Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the Old Testament saints were saved through Jesus Christ. They believed in the promise of the Messiah. We're saved on the backside of Christ looking back to the Messiah. But everybody is saved through Jesus Christ. 
And that's what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians. But there's some other places where Paul defends the gospel. Go and turn over to Colossians, and we'll get there eventually. Remember, go eat popcorn, right? Turn over to Colossians. Let, let me show you some other verses here before we get into that. Uh, in Paul defending the gospel, in 1 Timothy, you remember he writes to Timothy, who is the pastor at the church at Ephesus, and he writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, he, he writes about these who have shipwrecked the faith. You ever heard that phrase? It was Alexander and Hymenius who had shipwrecked the faith. He writes about these guys in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he clearly defines the gospel. Look at it. We're going to put it on the screen. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men. Everybody say all men. He desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ, not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So what Paul says here, listen, Paul says there are God, at the end of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy, you've got to put it in your brain, at the end of chapter 1, he says there are those guys who are shipwrecked the faith. And then in the beginning of the chapter 2, he clearly defines what the faith is. Do you see Paul's pattern? So he does that also here in the book of Colossians. Let me show you. Colossians chapter 2, I want you to look at verse 16. The Colossians are there, they become Christians, and then the Judaizers come in and say, hey, you've got to observe these fees, you've got to be under the law of Moses. Look at what Paul says about this in, in verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, let no one judge you in food or drink regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worshiping angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. In other words, Paul says, there are people who come in among you and they're trying to teach you that in order to be saved, you got to do this or do this or do that, or you don't do this or you don't do that. He says, that's not it. They're cheating you. He says, they're cheating you. They're tricking you. They're causing you to go astray. But before he did that, in the very previous section of the scriptures, look at what Paul did. Look at verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, in Christ you were also circumcised with the circumcision made how? Without hands. In other words, this is not a physical circumcision. This is a spiritual circumcision. He says, you were circumcised without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised you from the dead. And you being raised, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. How did he do that? Look at verse 14. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way and he's nailed it to the cross. Everybody say amen. amen. Praise be to God. So here he gives a very clear, concise, no bones about it definition of the gospel. And then he says, but there are some people, boy, they're trying to pervert this. They're trying to lead you astray. 
They're trying to trick you. They're trying to cheat you. Don't let that happen. Flip back to Ephesians. About to the left, a couple pages. We turn a lot of pages in my church. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you this. Everybody knows this passage. This is, well not everybody, but a pretty familiar passage of scripture. Look what he says here in verses 11 through 13. He says, therefore, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh, you who are called uncircumcision, what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jews would look at the Gentiles and say, well, those are the uncircumcised people. They're out of, outside the covenant. Look at verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off outside the covenant have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a glorious, profound symptom of the gospel. Well, look at what the gospel is clearly defined in verses 8 to 10. Same chapter. Right there next to what the gospel is. Look at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift to God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in. And Paul says don't miss this. Don't mess this up. Don't pervert this. The only way you can be saved is through Jesus Christ. You can do nothing to add anything to your salvation. You can do nothing to make God love you any more than he already has. He's given his son for you. There's nothing that you can add to your salvation to make it better. So it's, it's not a process. It's not, it's not a step-up process. You know, you think, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of saved. I, I, I'm getting more saved. And, I, and I'm almost saved. And I'm saved. No, it's like being pregnant. You either are or you're not. You're not a little bit pregnant, are you? Right? You either are or you ain't. So, so this is what Paul's saying. You are saved in Christ. You are completed in Christ. You don't need to do anything to add anything to that. Now, i got to tell you, and this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, there are perversions that are abundant even in the culture in which we live in today's times. There are still perversions of the gospel. There are people still trying to add to the gospel. So Paul does this a lot because he is passionate about the gospel. We need to get the gospel right. Look at 2 Timothy 1.8. Now I want to tell you something about this. Galatians, for those of you who work for the Bible translator, you probably know this. But Galatians is actually, scholars believe that's the first epistle, the first letter that Paul writes. Is Galatians. What's the last letter that Paul writes? Anybody know? Second Timothy. The first letter that Paul writes is in defense of what? The gospel. Galatians. Look at the last letter. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. From the beginning to the end of Paul's ministry, what was he writing about? The gospel. Paul never let the gospel down. He always came to the defense of the gospel. And we as the church, as the body of Christ, whether you're in the United States, whether you're in God-forsaken Indianapolis, or whether you're... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
I'm just kidding. <laughs> Whether you're in Indianapolis or Nevada, listen, I don't live in Las Vegas, okay? That's not where I live. It doesn't matter where you are. There are perversions of the gospel, and you, as the believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be vexed in your spirit when you hear somebody perverting the gospel. Because if what they're preaching is true, then what you're preaching isn't true. And what, if what you're preaching is not true, you're, you're dead in your sins still. You're without Christ, and you're hopelessly lost, and helplessly lost. So, first to the last, he's defending the gospel. Today, I told you he did this a lot today. That was kind of the introduction. My wife tells me my introductions are too long, and I always agree with it. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, and now let's talk about the message this morning. In Philippians chapter 3, um, Paul did this. I told you he defended the gospel in just about every letter he wrote. He wrote 13 books of the Bible that we know of. Some people believe he wrote the book of Hebrews. But the ones that we know of that Paul wrote, he always defended the gospel. And he did this in, in the letter to the church at Philippi in the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Now, I used to work on appliances in, in uh, when I lived in the... Hi, how are you? Would you like to preach? You can play the guitar. Okay. All right. In Philippians chapter 3, I used to work on appliances when I when I worked in where I lived in the southeastern part of the United States. I worked on washers and dryers and, and air conditioners and those kinds of things. And uh, One day I was going to work on this lady's washing machine. And I grabbed my toolbox out of the truck and I started in toward the house and I had one of these signs. And I don't know, maybe you guys don't have these signs here. We have them all over in the United States. Beware of the dog. You guys have those signs here? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Big, big orange letters usually. Beware of the dog. When you see that sign, you think, okay, did they? is there really a, a mean dog that lives here? Or did they just put that up because they don't want anybody bothering them? You know, Jehovah's Witness knocking on their door or what? You know, um, you know what, what, what's the reason behind this sign? And so I got my toolbox and it's heavy. And I'm carrying it and I see this sign, beware the dog. And, and there's a fence there. And I thought, maybe I shouldn't go into that fence because that sign is there. But, you know, I mean, the house is right there. I'll knock on the door. So I started in to the gate and I closed the gate behind me, which was a mistake. I remember that, okay, because I closed the gate behind me. And um, I started up to the house, and here come a basset hound. I don't know if you know what basset hounds. They're little dogs. They're little dogs. Okay? And, I mean, very non-intimidating dogs. they got long, droopy ears and sagging mouths and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, they're just usually very friendly, cuddly dogs. So this basset hound comes, he comes around the corner, and I'm like, oh, beware of that dog, really? Come on. I am not scared of you. So I keep bebopping up to the house, and a few minutes later, there is a Rottweiler. Do you know what a Rottweiler is? It's almost the biggest dog known to man. And he is coming around at 80 miles an hour, drool from his lips. Every time he runs, you know, his, his jaws bounce up, and you can see these teeth, and he is mad. So beware of that dog? Yes. <laughs> I dropped my toolbox, took off back towards the gate. Remember what I did? I, I locked the gate, which was a mistake. Because when there is a big Rottweiler chasing you, you can't get the gate open fast. 
You know what ended up happening? I jumped over the gate, caught my shirt on the thing, ripped my shirt off. I come, I come into the lady's house. She said, what happened to you? I said, that sign's true, isn't it? Beware of the dog, right? She said, yeah, we have a mean dog you're supposed to call. Well, I didn't know. But that's Paul's warning. Beware of the dogs. Look at verse 2. He says it right here. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. The mutilation was those who preached that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Notice this passage. Let's go back up to verse 1. Paul says, finally. He's a good preacher. He says, finally, and he still has two more chapters to write, right? Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write to you the same things is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. This passage helps us answer a question. Am I saved? Now, I don't know about you, but when I was saved at a very young age, I asked Christ to be Lord of my life at a very young age. I was about seven years old. I remember getting baptized at that age. And uh, I struggled with assurance of my salvation growing up. And I struggled hard because I would fall into sin. I would do things that weren't appropriate. People would say, well, you can't be saved if you're doing this or whatever. And I struggled with my salvation experience. But And so this 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 verse right here, Philippians 3.3, 3, if you're ever wondering about your salvation, this answers the question, am I saved? Uh, this is necessary because there are dogs who would pervert the gospel until it becomes no gospel, not good news. There are people who would say, man, if you do this, you probably aren't saved. If you haven't done this, you might not be saved. And Paul even tells the church at Corinth, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. And so this is an important question to settle in your life. Now let me tell you, there are two perversions of the gospel. There are two perversions of the gospel. One is legalism. That one says, hey, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. You know, all those kinds of things that the world says, hey, if you do that, you're probably not a Christian. You know, smoke, cheat, gamble, cuss, lie, all those kinds of things. All right? That's sin, right? We know that we shouldn't walk in sin. But there are people who say that if you sin, if you fall into temptation, hey, you can't be saved because that's a very legalistic approach to the gospel. That's a perversion, that's a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other is the far extremes. I call it the license perversion. It says, oh my goodness, since grace covers my sin, guess what I'm going to do? I'm just going to walk in sin my whole life. I'm just going to wallow like a pig in the mud. I'm just going to wallow in my sin so that God's grace can be poured out on me. And so that I can be just a testimony of grace. Look, man, I blew it again, but God's grace is good. That's a perversion of the gospel. And if you have that attitude, you're not saved. You don't belong to Christ. Those are the two perversions of the gospel. Now let me show you here. Uh, in verse 3, I already told you, this answers the question, am I saved? Number one point, if you're taking notes, this is point number one in the outline. Aaron's good with outlines, and he's probably a little more in-depth than I am, and probably puts the points up here, and maybe even fills in the blanks for you. I don't know. Do you just... Anyway, I don't fill in blanks for people. I hope you're listening. Number one is Christianity defined. Christianity defined. Paul says, we, look back at verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision who. Now, if you take that word who and you just replace it with 
equal marks. You know the equal sign, what I'm talking about in the math equations? How many of you knew you were going to do math when you came to church this morning, this afternoon? If you just take that word who, you could replace it with the equal signs. He says, we are the circumcision. In other words, we are the saved who equals this. Saved people do this. And he says three things. Number one, he says, those who worship God in the spirit, or more accurately translated, I believe, who worship in the spirit of God. What is he talking about? I think this idea perhaps comes from Jesus. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well? And there was this whole big discussion about where to worship God. She told Jesus, she said, you know, you Jews, you worship over in Jerusalem. We believe we're supposed to worship on this mountain. Remember what Jesus said to her? He said, woman, none of that matters. It doesn't matter. The location doesn't matter. The worship of God is not defined or confined to a single geographical location or to be necessarily governed by some Old Testament mosaic requirements. Why? Because when Jesus died, the wall is being torn down. The veil was ripped from top to bottom that allowed people to come into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And so Jesus says location is not important. Worship is not a matter of location. Worship is the matter of a heart. Not some outward sign or ceremony. Man, i got to go to the temple to worship. The true believer has settled in his heart who God is. Worship, true worship, takes place in the person's heart. Just let me show you what worshiping in the spirit of God means. Turn over to, uh, you don't have to turn there, i got it on the screen. Most of you know Romans 12, 1. It says, I present your, present your bodies a living sacrifice. How I many of you know sacrifice in the Old Testament equated to worship? Right? You, you didn't sacrifice outside of worshiping God. They were one and the same. Now look at this passage from Romans chapter 8. He says, Likewise, the Spirit, who? The Spirit, who is the Spirit? God. God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. He says, We don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be entered, uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints. Look at the last part of this verse. According to what? The will of God. You know what the Holy Spirit's role is in your life? is to guide you to do what? The will of God. That's exactly why Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. Because if you don't have the Spirit, you can't do the will of God. It is the Spirit that leads us and allows us to walk according to the will of God. That is what worship is. It's when we walk in God's will. You see, worship is not just singing a bunch of songs, although that may be the will of God for us at that point in time. Sometimes worship is getting on a boat and going an hour to a village to share the gospel with somebody. And sometimes worship is getting in a car tomorrow and going to a Hindu village to share the gospel. Sometimes worship is you getting up on Monday morning and going to your work to do the will of God. Not the will of your boss. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes that's what worship is. That's all worship is, doing the will of God. And that, because that settles who is God in your life. 
Worship in the Spirit of God aligns these weak hearts of ours to the will of God. This isn't about just singing some songs. This is about aligning my will with His will. Not singing, but submission. Not praise, but prostration before Him. Not just lifting our hands, but living a life. That's what worship is. The believers worship in the Spirit of God. How do I know what I'm saying? Number one, do I worship in the Spirit of God? In other words, is the Spirit leading me to walk according to His will? Second second qualification for the, for the believer, for the true believer. Number two, he says, they rejoice in who? Christ. Now, Paul could have said, true believers believe in Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. He could have said, true believers trust in Jesus. That would have been an accurate statement, but he didn't say that. What did he say? He said, they rejoice in Christ. Rejoice encompasses all of those other things. Now this confers a deep sense of amazement and wonder of salvation. And relishes with with thankfulness the presenting of our present position in Christ and the reality of our future with Him. Do you know what your present, if you're in Christ, you know what your present position is? Let me, let me just explain this to you. And this is so hard for the human mind to grasp. Your present position in Jesus Christ, if you are a true believer, is this. God took him who knew no sin to be sin for you. He took the perfect righteousness of Christ. He imputed it. He pressed it onto your life. He took your sin and He put it on Christ on the cross. And He paid the penalty for your sin at the cross. And when He looks at you, He doesn't see that rotten, deceitful, stinking heart that you have inside of you. He sees the purity of His Son who walked in perfect obedience to Him. Mind-boggling. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He took him who knew no sin to be sent for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's our position in Christ. So here's the bottom line to that. Here's our understanding that. Listen, you didn't do anything to get yourself saved. And there's nothing you're going to do to keep yourself saved. If you could lose your salvation, it would have already happened. You'd have done it by now. You'd have done it before you woke up this morning. It's like that lady who said, Lord, she's praying. She said, Lord, I haven't lied to anybody. I haven't cheated anybody. I haven't lusted after anything. Lord, I I haven't done anything wrong today. But I'm about to get out of bed. I'm going to need your help when I do. Right? Because it's it's not while we're laying in our bed that we think about those things. It's while we're just doing life. And we begin to cheat. And we begin to lie. And we begin to think those thoughts. And we begin to harbor bitterness in our heart. Listen, if you could lose your salvation, you'd do it every morning before 8 o'clock. Some of you would do it before you had your coffee, wouldn't you? I know you. Randy. Where is Randy? Don't mess with that guy until he gets his coffee. That's your present position. Now, you know what also we can rejoice in? Is our future hope. Listen. Listen to me. You know, you say, well, you live in the United States of America. You live a comfortable life and all that kind of stuff. We went to a village that's not very comfortable for people where I live, okay? But listen, this world is not... You could have the best... You could live in in the finest mansion in Myanmar, wherever that is. 
but it wouldn't compare to your home in heaven. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, glorious day. When we see Jesus and we experience the joys of heaven, why can't we rejoice in Christ? It really doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, this world's full of sickness and death and dying and fear and anxiety and war and strife and all that. Why can't we see ourselves in Christ and rejoice that our home is not this earth, but it's heaven? That's where we need to live. Beware the dogs. So here's what it is. This is what the true believer does. We rejoice in Christ. We don't see Jesus just as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know what I'm talking about? You know, like, Jesus bailed me out. You know, I'm in this situation, I'm in this circumstance, I need some help to get out of this. No, we don't see Jesus that way. We see Jesus as life. And every day we live in Christ, we rejoice in Christ. Third thing he says here. Third thing he says here. He says... We are worshiping God in the Spirit. He says we are living life, rejoicing in Christ. And the third thing he says here is what? We don't have any confidence in the flesh. Now, we're pretty good about the first two. Yeah, we sing worship songs. We worship God in the Spirit. Yes, we can rejoice about our position in Christ and our home in heaven. We can sing when we all get to heaven. When it comes to number three, how much confidence you got in the flesh? Paul says the believer has zero. When you look at the mirror and you say, boy, that guy right there, he's a failure. Left to live on his own, he is not going to make the right decision. I am convinced that God sells comedy tickets in heaven to my life. To watch my life. Circumstances come into my life. I am convinced God says, Gabriel, come over here and watch this. He is going to blow this. He is about to wreck this. Watch him. He's going to make a mess of this. Yesterday, we were in an ocean store. And, and your, your shopping carts, I don't know what you call them here. We call them buggies where I'm from. Your little shopping carts you push around, you know what I'm talking about? They go sideways. Ours in America, they don't go sideways. They go forwards or backwards. They do not go sideways. And now there, I know there's a perfectly good reason why they don't go sideways. I'm, Aaron told me to get a shopping cart, so I went and got a shopping cart, parked it beside all these little scooters, you know, the little things that kids ride, right? The sporting goods. And we were looking at something. Aaron said, let's go. I started to push that buggy up straight sideways, hit the first scooter. That, that scooter hit the second scooter. That scooter hit the third scooter. About 30 scooters laying on the ground. Crash, tumble. Employees from all over the place come swarming in. I'm trying to pick up all these scooters, and my good friend Aaron is laughing at me. And I'm saying, help me pick them up, Aaron. That's the kind of messes we make in life, isn't it? We can wreck good things. Look at what our world has done with sex. Look at what our world has done with the beauty of God's creation. We can wreck good things. Perfect things. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. 
So we don't need to have confidence in the flesh. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3, the end of verse. He says they have some confidence in the flesh. No. They have a little confidence in the flesh. No. How much? Zero. And you want to talk about confidence. Paul could have had it. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he might have confidence in his flesh, boy, me more. Look, circumcised in the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of the Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In other words, if you can be saved by the law, Paul was saved about ten times more than everybody else in the room. He could put confidence in the flesh. He was somebody. He was the guy that moms and dads would look up to and say, Hey, little boy, little girl, live your life like that Pharisee. He's the model. And Paul said, Man, you can't put confidence in the flesh. Because there's no hope outside of Jesus. Doesn't matter how good you think you are. Look what he says here in verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost. Man, that's a lightly translated word. Those of you who work for the Bible translation, you know this. That word lost is, is a bad word. I mean, it's not just lost. It's, it's not just worthless. It's worse than worthless. It's trash. It's rubbish. It's garbage. It's dumb. Paul says I, all those things, that those check marks... The, the, those things that we might put our confidence in. Man, I got this under control. I managed this. Got my finances straightened out. I got my marriage straightened out. I got my kids. Man, it's gone. What's the main goal of life? Look what he says in verse 8. The main goal in life, he says, I count it all lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. All I want to do is know Jesus. You know what? When you know Jesus and you love Jesus the way you're supposed to, you'll love your wife the way you're supposed to. When you love Christ like you're supposed to, you're going to love your children like you're supposed to. When you love Christ like you're supposed to, you're going to love your co-workers, even though some of them are hard to love, aren't they? And you're going to love that mean old boss. When you love Christ like you're supposed to, Paul says you let all that other stuff go. You know Jesus. Have no confidence in the flesh. So there's a pretty good test. Corinthians examine says, says examine see if, if, see if you're in the faith. Here's the here's the test. Worship. Do you worship in the spirit of God? That is, do you align your will with His will? Do you rejoice in Christ? Remember the exchange. Do you put no confidence to supply nothing, anything to salvation by the flesh? Now, second point here. Look at the contrast he gives here with the unbelievers. Look at verse 17. Skip all the way down to verse 17. He says, Brother, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often, now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Now pause right there. He says five things about these who are unbelievers. We talked about the believers, the three things that they do. Now he says five things that the unbelievers do. We're going to go through this rather quickly. Number one, he says they are enemies of the cross. They are enemies of the cross. 
James 4, 7 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. This is every person before Christ. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word for sinners could easily be uh, determined to be enemies. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Now this word enemy here, that's translated here, enemies in our Bible, Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, is a, is a word that means hatred. It's a word that means uh, hostility. They have hatred toward the cross of Christ. Secondly, he says their end is what? Destruction. Annihilation. You know, Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end leads to destruction. And that's different for the believer, isn't it? We talk about the believer has everlasting life. All they can expect is destruction in the end. Thirdly, he says their God is their belly. Now that's a funny phrase to us, right? When we think about our bellies, some of us have bigger ones than others, right? We think about our bellies being our God. That's kind of weird. But I come over here and I say, Buddha has a big old belly. Maybe that's where he got that from. I don't know. Whose God is their belly. This, this is a better phrase translated, whose God is their appetite. In other words, it's what they want. You don't have to worship a statue to be an idolater. Sometimes... Humanism is the heart, is the God of your heart. And it's what you want. It's what your appetite is. It's what it's about for you. It is, Paul is saying, they have an insatiable appetite for sin. And it doesn't matter how much these people sin. All they want to do is sin more. They can never be filled up. They can never stop wanting and desiring sin. That's the unbelief. Now, there are some people who would call themselves believers who have an insatiable appetite for sin. What does that tell you? Are they believers or unbelievers? They're unbelievers. Very simple here. If that describes you, then you are not a believer. Third, fourthly, he says they glory in their shame. This is a word talking, this, this, this phrase is talking about their attitude. They sin and they're proud of it. Now, where I live in Lyon County, Nevada, recently we had, uh, we have four legal brothels, that's houses of prostitution in our county. Nevada is the last state in the United States of America to have legalized prostitution. It's legal there. Now, it's practiced illegally in other states, but it's legal in the state of Nevada to have prostitution. We have four houses of prostitution, four brothels. And recently, the last election that came up, we had an opportunity as a county to vote to ban brothels in our county, to, to ban prostitution. You think, man, that's a no-brainer, right? We want to get rid of prostitution, right? We want to, we want to end prostitution. There's nothing good comes from that. The Bible condemns that. Let's get rid of it. And so we as churches in Lyon County, we kind of joined forces and we got up and we went together. My father and I, who is an elder at our church, he and I went, actually, they had three debates in Lyon County about the brothel issue. He and I went to the third uh, debate. The third debate was held in a little town hall, kind of about this size. 
And there was tables up here, and on one side of the table was the was us, me and my father, representing, you know, let's ban prostitution. And on the other side, there were two prostitutes on this side. Uh, Alice Little and, um, I can't remember the other lady's name. Ruby Ray, thank you. Not their real names, by the way. Um, Alice Little and Ruby Ray. Alice Little is the number one sex worker, legal sex worker in the world. She makes more money than any other sex worker in the world. That's that's our heritage in Nevada. That's that's the culture we live in. And so we're we're debating this issue. And, and, and what was appeal? It wasn't appalling that they were for prostitution. They make a lot of money doing this. And it wasn't appalling that the Baptist preachers were against prostitution. The Bible condemns it. What was appalling is the number of people in the crowd who would come up to the microphone and say, "Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't see anything wrong with prostitution." That's mind blowing to me. Why? Well, because they pay taxes. And because they contribute to the Boys and Girls Club. And they do good for our community. That doesn't equate with scriptural Christianity. And that doesn't compute for me. And it wasn't just one. And it wasn't just two. There were dozens of people who said, came up to the microphone and said, I believe the Lord Jesus saved me. But there's nothing wrong with what these ladies are doing. We need to support them. You have hatred in your heart toward them. You want to put them out of a job. You want to let them go down to the streets and practice illegal prostitution, which none of that's true. But it was appalling to see that Christian, quote-unquote Christian attitude towards something that God says in abomination. Are you kidding me? They glory in their shame. They sin and they're proud of it. Not a believer. And then the last one. This is the kicker. The telltale sign. The last thing he says about these who are unbelievers. Their mind is consumed with earthly things. Wow. Look at Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Direct contrast, isn't it? Believers are supposed to have their thing or their mindset on the things of the uh, above. Unbelievers, he says here in Philippians chapter three, they have their minds consumed with earthly things. Now this just this is not just like prostitution and drugs and and sex and alcohol and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. That's some of what he's talking about, but it's not all. Where's your mind? What are you concerned about? Are you, are you consumed with earthly things? Or is your mind set on the things above? So, we know that believers worship God in the Spirit. They rejoice in Christ. They put no confidence in the flesh. We know that unbelievers, in contrast, hate the cross. Their end is destruction. They have an insatiable appetite for sin. They are proud of their sin. And they are consumed with earthly things. Can Paul make it any clearer? Can, he, can there be any clearer litmus test to say you are a Christian or you are not a believer? It's easy to determine. 
You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. It is through grace. It is through Christ. But this is the work that God does in your life. When you become a Christian, He puts this hunger to worship God in spirit in you that says, I want to align my will with the will of the Father. When you become a Christian, He puts this hope in you that rejoices in Christ. When you become a Christian, He puts this desire within you to put no confidence in your flesh anymore. He changes it. Now, let's close with this final thinking, this final point. This is the Christian's citizenship. Look at verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in where? Heaven. How many of you live in Myanmar? How many of you are citizens of Myanmar? How many of you are citizens of the United States? How many of you are Christians? Oh, some of you just got tricked. You're a Christian, your citizenship is in. We don't think like that, do we? How easily we forget. There was a guy named Albert E. Brumley, long time ago, wrote an old song This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. It's not our home, it's not our home. We get too comfortable in this place. This ain't home. I want you to say it like me. This ain't home. Now that's bad grammar, but that's good theology, okay? Say it with me. This ain't home. Look at your neighbor and say, this ain't home. Don't fall in love with this place. This ain't home. All this stuff around you is going to melt away. It's going to pass away. This is not my home. Woo! I got one bigger. I got one better. Where there are no mosquitoes. The humidity is a constant 10%. Yeah. You know what I did at my house yesterday? Snow. We got snow at my house. We come over here and I'm about to black out. It's so hot. This ain't home. Look what Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. You need to underline lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. Place is heaven. The purpose is to make us like Him. Remember, that's what He says: to conform us to Him. You know that. You know that verse. I bet you know that verse. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, somebody's already quoted it for you. When something bad happens in your life, they say, "All things work together for good to them that love the Lord who are called according to His purpose." Romans eight twenty eight. Right? You know what the purpose of God is? Romans eight twenty eight says, "All things work together for good to them who love the Lord who are called according to His purpose." Romans eight twenty nine says the purpose. He called us to conform us to make us just like Jesus. He doesn't want to make a new improved you. He wants to make another Jesus. He don't want to make your life better. You need to throw your life away because your life is now hidden with Christ. The purpose is to make you like Jesus. 
He doesn't want you to live your best life now. He wants you to throw away your life so you can become more like Jesus. To conform you to His image. So here's the so what. It's the call of the Christian's life. Go back to verses 12 to 14 and we'll close with this. Not that I've already attained. Not that I'm made perfect. But I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which also Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on. Don't give up. Don't give up worshiping in the Spirit, aligning your will with His. It's easy to get tired. It's easy to get run down. It's easy to get fearful sometimes on your job and somebody sees you reading your Bible or whatever. It's easy to let the world kind of creep in and cause you to wonder, man, should I really, should I really worship God in Spirit here this way today? Don't give up. Don't give up rejoicing in Christ. Don't give up putting no confidence in the Beware of the dogs. Beware of those who would pervert the gospel, who would bring the guilt of the past back into your life. Hey, you can't be a believer. Remember what you used to do? Hey, let that junk go. Beware the dogs who would hinder you by putting unnecessary attachments to the gospel, who would hinder you by causing you not to see the true definition of the circumcision of the heart. There are perversions. Oprah Winfrey says there couldn't possibly be one way to God. Only one way. Come on. Joel Osteen says, I'm not sure about homosexuals. They might make it to heaven. 1 Corinthians 6 9 says, unless you repent, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you need to check that out because they are not the only ones on the list. Billy Graham, at the end of his life, he said there is a wideness to allow people into God's kingdom who may not be Christians. There are perversions in the gospel, and they come from the oddest of places. Paul said, even if we are an angel from heaven, preach another gospel. I have to tell you this. We're flying over here, and we have to land in Singapore. We don't, we get off the plane in Singapore to change planes. We go through that airport, and I don't know how many, that's a huge airport, beautiful airport. We get over to, we get over to our gate where it is, and I gotta tell you this, we come, I don't know how many hours, I don't know how many miles, it was a long trip, y'all. We came in long ways. We sat down, and on the television, not lying to you, on the television in front of us, there is Joseph Prince. Preaching in English with the with whatever language they speak in the Chinese language in the subtitles. I had to come all the way to Singapore to hear Joseph Prince preach. It wasn't bad enough I had to sit and wait on the plane. Now I have to hear Joseph Prince preach. Joseph Prince, if you don't know him, he's he's one of those guys that we call prosperity preachers. 
who, who say, you know what, God loves you and He wants to give you a great life right now. And he wants you, He wants to bless you. And if you're not wealthy and if you're not healthy and if you're not doing good, then that means the favor of God's not resting in your life. You don't have enough, you don't have enough faith. You need to have more faith. And you need to send me some more money so that you can have more faith. It's called prosperity gospel. But you know what Jesus said? He didn't even have a place to lay his head. None of that's true. That's a perversion of the gospel. And I had to come all the way to Singapore to hear that. It's all over the globe. It's all over the world. The perversions. And I bet it's in your own backyard. And Paul says, beware of the dogs. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much. For the opportunity to share with these people today. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that if there's been something that I've said that is an error, that is of me, of my own opinion, of my own agenda, God, I pray that you would wipe that from our memory banks. But Lord, only that which is pure and only that which is right would remain. And I pray that you would be honored as these people, as we gather together, not as U.S. citizens or Myanmar citizens or some other, but as citizens of heaven. Citizens of the kingdom of God. As we unite to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, may you be honored in this world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.